We are in the book of Hebrews. We started it last week, and last week was an introductory message of Hebrews. I did Hebrews 1, 2, and 3, the verses 1, 2, and 3, and like Phil just said, he backed up and started reading at the end of, uh, middle of the verse through verse 3, because I kind of cut off there. If you look in your Bibles, there's two sentences between Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, and Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4. It's like two different sentences. It kind of it really is one long run-on sentence there, so it was kind of hard to figure out where to end it and where to begin it, kind of. And um, I, I just am so excited to look into the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a very special book of the Bible. We, we're wrapping up our 9 a.m. course seminar class. We've been going through the, the whole New Testament, one book at a time, and uh, we are ending in two weeks. We're going to end our 26-week uh, class on, on the New Testament. And uh, guess where we're ending our New Testament class? Revelation, right? Hopefully you got that right. Guess where we started? Not Matthew. You would think it would be Matthew, right? Because that's the first book of the New Testament. But we started in the book of Hebrews. Now you might say, well, that's kind of confusing. Why start a New Testament class with the book of Hebrews? Well, Hebrews is a link from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's kind of like God's commentary on the Old Testament because what it does is it, it beautifully captures Scripture, and, and it, it opens up the Scripture. It tells the history of, the, of Israel in light of Christ. You see, Christ is the main point of the Old Testament, and it is to Christ that the whole sacrificial system that the Old Testament talks about, that it's talking about Jesus Christ. And there are a few places in Scripture, there are very few places in Scripture that makes that point so much clearer like the book of Hebrews. So if you want to understand, and, and some of you, I know you do this, you want to understand the whole Bible. You want to understand the Old Testament. Well, one of the best ways to get a good grasp on the Old Testament is to look at the book of Hebrews. It's a great place to start. And if I wanted to summarize the book of Hebrews in three words, I would just say, Jesus is greater. That's the theme of our sermon series in Hebrews. That's the theme of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is greater. And it's the message that we need to be reminded of all the time in our own lives, that Jesus is supreme, that Jesus is greater. Greater than what, you may ask? Well, he's greater than anyone and everything. Again, that's, that's kind of vague. That's not very helpful. Well, so to really understand the greatness of Jesus and what he has done for you, you really need to understand who he is. I mean, it's one thing to tell people Jesus died on the cross for you. He rose from the grave again. That's really important message. But you really need to understand who he is to really understand what he did for you. We need to talk about the person of Christ in order to really fully grasp the work of Christ. It reminds me of the end of the movie uh, Rudy. It's one of my favorite movies. It's a football movie about Notre Dame football, which uh, I was a big fan of growing up. And then the movie, I love the movie. If you don't know anything about football, if you never even watch, if you just walk in and watch the end of the movie, of uh, the movie Rudy, you see uh, uh, one guy tackling another guy and then everybody overreacting, right? Everybody's celebrating. Why? He made a tackle. Big deal. That's what football is, a tackle football, right? So why did they get all excited at the end of the movie? Why did they celebrate so much for the fact that they actually like picked him up? The other players picked him up and carried him off the field. What was the big deal? Well, if you knew the whole story of Rudy, if you understood where he came from, what he went through, the adversity, the fact that he, he wanted to play football, but he was such a little guy. He was five foot six inches tall, 165 pounds. And so he was just a little guy. And he, 
he had a lot of heart, but he didn't have a lot of skill. And on top of that, he was dyslexic. He, he couldn't learn very well. And so after high school, he was told, like, you're not going to college. He got a job in the steel mill. And so he was working in the steel mill, but he kept saying, I want to go to college. Well, he tried to get into Notre Dame. Couldn't get into Notre Dame. He had to go to another college. So he went through all this adversity, and you realize what a big impact it was for him to actually make the team, get into college, make the team, get on the team, get on into a play, and then to sack the quarterback on the last play of the game. And then, like, it's so impactful, you like, you might cry a little bit if you watch the movie. <laughs> you haven't seen it. You might be like, wow, this is so important. It's because you understood, you understood what he came from. You know what I'm saying? And so, like I said, if you only go to church at Easter, if you only hear the story that Jesus died on the cross and rose again, you might say, like, well, you know, okay, that's a really neat story, but look at the whole backstory, right? When you understand the backstory, man, it's going to impact you in such a bigger way. It's going to impact you so much so that you, you, you might cry. You know what I'm saying? That's all right. And you understand that statement when I say Jesus is greater. It is so much more meaningful and impactful. Well, the author of Hebrews, he, he gives us this, this 13 chapters here in the book of Hebrews. And he starts out with this topic of comparing Jesus, saying Jesus is greater than angels. And he makes this point by doing seven different Old Testament quotations to help us understand how Jesus is greater than angels. Now, if you're looking at your Bible, you can see that they're kind of written like poetry. They're kind of offset, not, you know what I'm saying? So you can tell that it's a quotation here. Well, why angels? Why did he start out by like right away, like I said, the first three, four verses are introductory, but then why does he go in and start talking about angels? Why didn't he start by talking about how Jesus is greater than all other religious systems or Jesus is greater than all other men who have ever lived? Why did he talk about angels? Well, angels had a place inside of Judaism already. Angels were mentioned over 100 times in the Old Testament. In Isaiah's vision of the throne room of heaven, angels were offering continuous praise to God on his throne. The, name, the word angel means messenger, and when they showed up in people's lives in human form, it shocked people. They carried important messages from the Lord. And so angels were really thought of as, as the number one connection between God and man. Even more important is that uh, we read in Scripture that the law was given to Moses through the ministry of angels at Mount Sinai. So people connected the law with angels as well. And so the writer of Hebrews wanted the people to understand, if you're going to pay attention to the law given through the angels, then they ought to give greater attention to the message given by Christ, who's, who's greater than the angels. And so by starting out talking about angels, he's basically saying, uh, Jesus is greater than angels, and angels is the greatest spiritual being that you have any relation to, and you already elevate the law and put the angels in that kind of a special place. Well, Jesus is greater than that. Also, during the, the intertestamental period, that's the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the, what, we, what we call the 400 silent years, between um, when the New Testament started, uh, uh, we do have some writings from that area, from that time period, era, and a lot of people were fixated on angels. Like I said, they, they saw angels as more than just messengers, but they saw them as Israel's protectors. So many Jews looked at angels as, they, as the people that would come as God's army to rescue and vindicate the nation. And some people believed in guardian angels, it's really, an, um, it's, there's no 
foundation of that in scripture, even though a lot of people even today will believe that there's like angels over areas or people believe that angels over houses or guardian angels. I've seen like bumper stickers that say, don't drive your car faster than your guardian angel can fly. Right? Well, there's no, that's not scripture, okay? You're not going to find a verse that says that you have a guardian angel. And, but people became obsessed with this. It's why Paul, he was writing in the book of Colossians, he's writing to the church at Colossae, he warned against worshiping angels. And so we know that they had this elevated status in people's lives and in their spirituality and how they related to God and, and how they viewed themselves in relation to the spiritual world. So, you know, that is why he started in Hebrews chapter 1 with angels. That's why he started here. People were, um, they also, um, a lot of people during this time, Christians, this is written to Hebrews, so this is written to Jewish Christians not living in Judea or Palestine, but, but living abroad in the, the broad Roman world. They were under pressure and the threat of persecution for being Christians. And then also they were under pressure because they, you know, were looked down upon if they were to go into the synagogues because they believed in Jesus. So they were stuck in this middle area as Christ followers. They were being tempted to compromise then. And so one of the ways that they could compromise, if they saw Jesus as just an angel, perhaps even the greatest angel and not God in the flesh like he was, then they could be more accepted in the synagogue and they could avoid the societal pressure that they were facing. So such a prospect was tantalizing because you could easily say without, out, you know, without just outright denying Christ, then if you can only look at him a little bit differently, then they could say, well, he's kind of like a really great angel in their minds. They could be accepted by the outside world. Well, that kind of temptation is still something that we deal with today because affirming Christ, affirming the superiority of Christ, the supremacy of Christ is going to have real world implications on our own life. It's, it matters. And so we can't change our message that Jesus is the only way. We can't change our view of that, that we know from Scripture is true that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We must be clear with who Jesus is in order to get the gospel of salvation right. It's also tempting to, to elevate angels into a place of spiritual prominence in our own lives, focusing on them instead of focusing on Jesus. Even today, I think a lot of people don't have a good balanced view of angels. They are real beings created by God for a purpose, but we should not worship angels. Angels serve the Lord, worship the Lord, and help us see Jesus. And so we can be aware of them without fixating on them. If you have an unhealthy view of angels, then this passage is going to be very helpful for you today, just as it was very helpful for the first listeners. The overall message that, that this is all about today, it's right there in verse 4, at the beginning of our passage, that God the Father has given Jesus a more excellent name and an eternal kingdom above angels. God has given Jesus a more excellent name and an eternal kingdom above angels. And there's also a great ending at the very end of verse 14 about how angels relate to us today. And in the middle, there's seven Old Testament quotations that help us to understand that Jesus is greater than angels by talking about his position, his nature, and his authority. So let's start by opening that opening line right there in verse 4 where we left off last week. 
In verse 3, it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and that after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In conclusion, Jesus was shown to be superior than the angels because he was given the name that is more excellent or more superior than their name. And so first of all, what we see from Scripture today is that Jesus is superior because of his superior name. And that name was that of Son. Remember, Jesus was the eternal Son of God. This wasn't a new name, per se, but it it was a name given to him. But, you know, we tend to view names as just like labels, you know? Like, uh, you put a name tag, my name is Pastor Eric. It's just something that you could call me, right? It's what I didn't call my whole life, because it's the name that my mom and my dad gave to me when I was a baby. It's just a label. But back then, the name actually, your name actually meant something. It was, it was an identifier because your name, it really expressed who the person was. So it's funny, um, I've lived in different areas where I knew a lot of people have nicknames. Nicknames are kind of like that, right? It's a label, but actually describes the person of shorty, you know? You know what I'm saying? Or something like that, right? So according to Jewish thought, a person's name revealed his nature, and it could express rank and dignity. Jesus had the name Son from all eternity. Jesus was always the Son. But the phrase here is the perfect tense where it says the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so this is a special demarcation because no angel was ever given a special name like this. They were never given the name of Son. And to go along with this and to build on his argument even more in verse 5, he, to talk about the superiority of the Son, the author makes the point by quoting from two well-known Old Testament passages. And he chose these references not just because of the words, but because of the, the whole passage with which he chooses them from. And the first, in verse 5, is from Psalms chapter 2, what we open our worship service with this morning by reading from. Now, Psalms chapter 2 opens with, like I said earlier today, it, it opens with this, this uh international conspiracy against the Lord and against his anointed king. Now, we know that to be true, that early believers understood Psalms 2 to be about Jesus' death. Now, think about that. Years before, they didn't didn't connect it to Jesus' death. It was just Psalms 2, right? It wasn't until Jesus' death and his resurrection, and then the first believers, they would look back and say, hey, Psalms 2, this is about Jesus. We know this because in Acts chapter 4, Verses 25 through 26, the first believers applied Psalms 2 to Jesus. And then Paul, when he was preaching in Acts chapter 13, verse 32, he quoted Psalms chapter 2 saying, this is about Jesus. And so we know this is about Jesus. Psalms chapter 2 is all about this enthronement psalm, because you heard the king, king language when I read it there. It links sonship with inheritance with enthronement. And so it's just really neat how he starts out here. It's, this is so neat because he goes through these next verses here, and you already know where he's going, okay? He's going to this kingship theme, starting right here from Psalms 2 that he quotes in verse 5. So keep in mind now as we go through this that this is going to be about the kingship of Jesus, his train of thought here. Okay, so the very next line in, at the end of, uh, it says, or again, so at first he says, you are my son, today I've begotten you. That's from Psalms 2. Or again, 2 Samuel 7, 14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. 
Now, first he quotes from Psalms, and then he goes to the prophets, and he quotes from 2 Samuel. And this is the passage in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is the passage when David, King David, wanted to build a temple for the Lord. He wanted to build a temple for the Lord. He said, I'm going to build you a house, God. And then God, through the prophet Nathan, comes and speaks to David and says, the Lord says, you are not going to build me a house, but I am going to build you a house. In other words, you're not going to build me a building made of sticks and stones. I'm going to build you a house like a line, a descendant. And first of all, this, this prophecy said, your son, you're going to have a son, and he's going to build me a physical structure. But one of your descendants is going to have a kingdom that's going to last forever. So this is called, um, I, I love how God used Nathan the prophet to speak to David, to say that, David, your son Solomon is going to build me the house. You're not going to build me an actual physical structure. But we call this the Davidic covenant or the covenant that God made with David. And all the Jewish people said, this is so true. This is going to continue on. That if there's going to be uh, somebody from the line of David that is always going to be on the throne in Jerusalem. David was the, one of the greatest kings. And you know, in Solomon was, it was very wise, and it was going to continue on in this fashion. But it didn't continue on in that fashion. Eventually, that line was broken, but the people of Israel, they had always hoped that God was going to send a, a good and righteous king, was going to sit on the throne forever. Well, you remember what the angel, Gabriel, see, an angel had a name, named Gabriel, but he wasn't the name that was above every name. But he did have a name, Gabriel. He was a messenger, and he went to a young girl named Mary, and he said to her in Luke chapter 1, verses 32 to 33, that she was going to have a baby, and he was going to be named Jesus. But the angel said, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will get to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So Jesus was the son the son of David who was going to inherit the throne and his kingdom would have no end. And so we see that Jesus is superior to the angels because he was always God's son. And because, you know, you see these two Old Testament sonships prophecies that marvelously point to who Jesus is, how he was superior. And how these two, these two verses, Psalms 2 and first, Second Samuel 7, how they were fulfilled by Jesus at his incarnation, at his resurrection, and at his exaltation. And so secondly, to go along with that, um, his superior name, we see that the superior honor and dignity that come with Jesus' arrival and the fact that the angels were commanded to worship him. In verse 6 here, this is a quote from the law. So we had the Psalms now, we had the prophets, now we have the law in Deuteronomy 32:43. It says, let all God's angels worship him. And that's also an allusion to Psalm 97.7, by the way. Now, in Deuteronomy, in its original context, this statement is about angels bowing down in worship. It's in reference to the Lord, Yahweh. And now the writer of Hebrews identifies this person as Jesus. And so the argument is clear here. The angels worship Christ. Christ doesn't worship angels. The angels declare the birth of Christ. It wasn't the other way around. And the angels are not called sons. Only Jesus is the true son who is worthy of worship. So, so far we see that Jesus is superior because of his great name. Jesus is superior because of his great honor. 
And thirdly, we, we know that Jesus is superior because of his status. That angels are servants, but the Son is sovereign. That's who angels were. They were servants of the Lord, but the Son is sovereign. And this is kind of hard to understand at first glance here. I'm looking at verse 7 and verse 8. But there's a Greek conjunction that's not translated in some Bibles here. It's kind of like, it just helps you to understand as you're reading. But in verse 7, it, it, it says, of the angels. Kind of it says, on the, on the one hand of the angels, it says. And then in verse 8, but on the other hand of the Son, he says. So verse 7 here is he's comparing verse 7 and verse 8. They kind of go hand in hand there. In verse 7, it's a quote from Psalms 104.4. The writer here is, he says, uh, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. The writer is pointing out that angels operate within the natural order of God's will. And sometimes it looks impressive with wind or with fire, but still they are only servants. But on the other hand, verse 8, the sun is different. This comes from Psalms 45, 6, and 7. Now, um, we haven't done this too much, but if you go back in your Bible and you read, like I said earlier, um, actually last week I said, it's not a word-for-word translation in some of these uh, verses that I've been mentioning here. Let's say you want to go back home and you want to say, I want to check up and see how close this is. And you go back and you look, it might not be exactly word-for-word. And I said one of the reasons why is because the translation that the writer of Hebrews is using is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So our English Bibles are translated into English from the original Hebrew. But there was an old copy, even before the time of Christ, of a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is using, a translation from Greek. And so it might be a little bit different, but if you go back in Psalms 45, and there's a title, like even before verse 1, it says the title of Psalms 45 is a love song. It's a love song. So the original context in Psalm 45, it looks like a marriage feast of a king. But also it talks about the Lord. It's obviously applying to God in parts of Psalms 45. And now this is being applied to Jesus as the king in the story. And so the writer of Hebrews is showing us how to interpret Psalm 45. Isn't that cool? Like Psalm 45 was really confusing. There's a love song. There's, there's words about God in there. Well, now we know from Hebrews, from Scripture, using Scripture to interpret Scripture, now we know, have a better understanding of Psalms 45. Well, from Hebrews 1.8, we learn that Psalm 45, verse 6, is teaching us that Jesus' throne is eternal, forever and ever. Christ is sovereign he is not only the prophet who speaks, not only the priest who saves, but he's also the king who rules. And his scepter, it says the scepter is, scepter is like the stick that they would hold. It was a picture of the law, of his rule. His scepter is righteousness. He loves what is good. He hates what is evil. And there is great joy in his reign. You know, he talks about um, in verse 9 there that He's anointed. We usually think of anointing of a king at his um, installment as a king. But sometimes it was just a way of blessing a king or celebrating a king as well. It's not just for the installment of a king. So this is a picture of God's surpassing delight in his son and his joy at the completion of the son's work. 
in all of this, Christ is beyond equal. And our author goes on to another Psalms in verses 10 through 12, now to describe the eternality of the Son. Of the seven Old Testament references in Hebrews chapter 1, Psalms 102 is the only one that does not have very many connections to the Messiah or the Son. But like I said, when you're reading through Psalm Hebrews chapter 1, you can see like he's connecting all these different parts of Scripture and pointing to the Son being the King. And so when you get down here, you can see that Psalms 102 is part of the same line as well. But again, go back and look at Psalms 102. Your title will say, a lament. It says, actually, a prayer of one who afflicted in Psalms 102. The title, a prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. So it's a lament for human suffering and weakness and uncertainty. But Psalms 102 ends with hope in God's faithfulness and his immutability, his unchangingness. So the author of Hebrews once again takes this prayer of lament from Psalms and points us to Christ as his sure foundation. Do you have uh, favorite clothes that you like to wear? Maybe a favorite pair of jeans that fits right? Maybe a favorite hoodie that's really soft and comfortable or a favorite t-shirt? I have favorite clothes as well. And I like to wear my clothes, especially my favorite ones, until I wear holes in them. And then I don't like to get rid of them. And thankfully, I have a loving wife who says, these clothes have holes in them, Eric. You need to get rid of them. And then I cry a little bit, you know, not like from Rudy, not cries of joy, you know, but cries of sadness. Because some of these clothes I've had with me for 20 years, right? And she says, you know what? You got that when you turn 16? You're 40-something? You can get rid of it, right? (laughs) And I have to say goodbye. And I have to roll them up and get rid of them and throw them away and get some new clothes that hopefully last me 25 years. (laughs) Maybe I hold on to them too long, you know? But the author of Hebrews says that we all go through this. And it says when when your clothes wear out, you roll them up and you get rid of them. Like a robe you roll up, like a garment, they will be changed, he says. But the sun, on the other hand, does not change. The sun is eternal and permanent. Where the created order is subject to change and decay and ultimately destruction, the person of Christ is unending and unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His years have no end. And so we've talked about Jesus' superior name, his honor, his worship, his status, his position as the son. And then this argument now ends, this whole series of arguments from all across Scripture, it now ends with this rhetorical question. And this question is asked in verse 13. It's asked in a way to elicit a negative response. He says, to which of the angels has he ever said, basically saying, like, you know that the answer is no. And then he says, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Now that quote right there is one of the most quoted psalms in the whole new testament 14 times you see that phrase 14 times jesus even quoted this line himself and he applied it to himself at his own trial in mark chapter 12 verse 36 it's psalms 110 verse 1 
this is not applied to any angel at all. This is why he, he says, to which of the angels did he ever say this? No angel could feel for people or atone for man, mankind's sin like Jesus or plead for them as Jesus now does. Angels cannot serve us but, and they cannot save us. His name is more excellent because not only is he a son, but he is also a savior. Jesus quoted this verse when he was at his trial. He, Jesus also quoted this when he was talking to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 22, verse 44. When Jesus was trying to get the Pharisees to understand that he himself was the true son of David and the eternal king who was prophesied about. Remember he said, didn't David himself prophesy about me? And he was trying to explain to the Pharisees from the book of Psalms that he was the son of David who was king. And then Peter used this verse at his sermon at Pentecost to declare that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. And so what we see here now at the end of Hebrews chapter 1 is this verse that's so common, like Peter used it and Jesus used it and the first Christians used it. And the author of Hebrews is now coming full circle back to the beginning again by saying that Jesus is the Lord, Jesus is the Christ, and Jesus is the king. You see how he ties it all back together again, back to the kingship again at the very beginning of Hebrews where he started. He pulls everything all together there. And uh, now in conclusion, what do we want to say is, okay, so where does that leave us? And where, why did he make all these points? Why did he build upon this in so many different ways and quote these scriptures? Like I said, it's more than just the scripture. It's the whole passage where he's pulling from to emphatically make this point that Jesus is greater than the angels. Well, where does that leave us today? Well, it, look at verse 14 and you talk about angels. Well, are they not all ministering spirits sent out for the sake, uh, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvations? So where does that leave angels? Same place as it did before. Angels are still doing the position, doing the job that they are called to do. They are servants of the Lord. They are sent out with a job to do. They are messengers. They're going out to do the job that the Lord tells them to do when he tells them to do that. And the work that they're doing is serving to advance the kingdom of God. Now, there are credible stories all throughout history. I could probably talk for a long time, different stories that I've heard. I like to hear these different stories, like you read in devotional books like Our Daily Bread. Or, In fact, um, I think it was Billy Graham had a whole book, or a part of a book about angels, where he told different stories throughout church history. Of missionaries, George, um, John Payton was a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands, and he was ministering among the heathen. That's the word they used like 150 years ago. But taking the gospel to unreached people groups, and how sometimes they would the missionaries would be attacked. And there are stories throughout history where sometimes they would go to be attacked and they would say, well, we couldn't advance against you, you know, or that there was some like people with swords that were standing guard at your gate. And the missionaries were like, we never have people with swords standing guard. What are you talking about? Well, it must've been angels. I mean, there's all kinds of stories like that throughout history. Credible stories, incredible, incredible stories when you hear them. But what's more incredible is Jesus. That's more incredible is who Jesus is and what Jesus did for us. And the truth is, is that all those stories about angels, they pale in comparison to the glory of the Redeemer, the Son of God. You know that, that whole movie about Rudy, they, they pick him up on their shoulders and they carry him out. You know, it would be really dumb to make a big deal about all of those 
role players, right? You know, you want to make a big deal about Rudy. They picked him up and carried him out. Like, don't worship angels. Angels are the ones who are like lifting up Jesus. They're the ones who are pointing to Jesus, making a big deal about who Jesus is. You know, and it's also amazing. I love this whole first chapter of Hebrews. Like I said, it comes full circle back to the kingship of Jesus. But what also comes full circle right here is what he calls us, right? What does he call us? He doesn't say the angels are sent out to, 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 be, to help the Christians, to help the brothers, you know, to help the elect, even though those, those would all be true. He says, to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So he's calling us heirs. Look in verse 4. Inherited, it's the same word. Back up and look in verse 2. Jesus is the appointed the heir of all things. Isn't that amazing? So he ties us with Jesus there. Because we inherit salvation through the work of Jesus who rightfully earned it. We now can experience salvation and glory and the joy of being in his kingdom because we get to go in with him. Amen. And so it's amazing to me to just to reflect on what we learn here about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. That through faith in him, now we get to be a part of, of his family. You know, when you inherit something, you don't earn it. When you inherit something, it's given to you. You don't work to earn salvation. You inherit it. You didn't do anything to earn it. You receive it by faith alone in Jesus Christ. What an amazing blessing that is from the Lord. So when we find ourselves overwhelmed by rapid social change, political disruption, natural disasters, or even personal tragedy, know this, that our only secure foundation is the Son who is Lord and King of all. Let's pray together. Oh God, our Father in heaven, we do thank you for you, first of all, for being holy and righteous. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ, our Savior. Oh God, we were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were dead, hopeless, lost, blind, without any hope in this world. And yet you sent Jesus Christ to be our Redeemer. And Jesus Christ earned our salvation. And Jesus Christ is now the King. We thank you that we can be a part of his kingdom. Help us to rest in that only secure foundation of Jesus Christ, who is Lord and King of all. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.